Welcome to another episode of Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis. Karis on Crime explores criminal justice issues and cases in the news. As always, I welcome your feedback, your questions and ideas. You can post them in the forum on Karis on Crime if you're a member or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karis and at Karis on Crime. My Facebook page is my name, Beth Karis. I want to welcome James Mitch Velos. Now, he prefers to be called Mitch. He's a Utah attorney who has gained prominence and success as a personal injury lawyer representing injured plaintiffs. He's been nominated three times as one of Utah's top lawyers, and Mitch has also developed expertise in an area of law he's quite passionate about, firearms law. In developing this specialty, he's become one of the nation's experts. He authored a book, called Self-Defense Laws of All 50 States, which is in its second edition, published in 2013, soon, I suspect, to be revised, uh, just because the laws are constantly changing in states. But this book is far more than a compendium of each state's laws. Mitch analyzes, compares, and offers advice, and he's really an advocate of responsible gun ownership. And I'm sure all of you can appreciate that, regardless of where you come down on the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. So let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mitch. Thanks, Beth. It's always good to talk to you. So yeah, we did talk uh, three years ago on a radio show, um, and... Uh, We've got new cases to talk about. But let me ask you a general question first. Why did you write this book about self-defense laws in all 50 states? Well, I, uh, as you may know, I, I wrote Utah's gun law book um, back in, at the end of uh, the 90s. And uh, it, it became a, a passion with me. Uh, uh, actually, I started writing the books so I could... Uh, uh, my, my sons and I, uh, they were in their teens at the time. Uh, we wanted to go shooting. We wanted to go hunting. We didn't want to inadvertently violate some obscure law. And so I started putting these laws into a, a file. And then I thought, well, how, does, how does the average person understand some of this stuff? Because it's written by a committee, you know. It's in the legalese. And so I started uh, making what I call plain talk summaries. Well, long story short, after I wrote the uh, Utah book, I started getting these gun cases. Uh, and primarily self-defense incidents. And I realized that the short chapter we had in our Utah gun law book really didn't cover the topic well enough. My son was getting ready to graduate, and I said, what, how much work would it take to, to, to write, you know, to, to include a book about the self-defense laws of all 50 states? And he, we thought it was going to be an easy task until we found out that a lot of states don't even follow their statutes anymore. It's it's gone into case law and jury instructions, uh, and that's kind of why we put the book together. It just I just realized that most of the serious cases I was getting resulted from some sort of a defensive incident, and that people were not aware of how the what the law was and how the law was being applied. So it's really for a lay person who needs to understand in simpler language what their rights are. Yes, and, and we not only explained what the statutes or the case law or the jury instructions of each state say, but we went a step further, and we, as we were studying this uh, over two years, uh, $200,000 worth of research uh, using a, a team of top BYU law students to help us when we found out we were in deeper than we thought, um, 
we, we came up with some factors, and we, we talked about that, uh, you and I, earlier, uh, what we call thumbs-down factors. And these are factors that <clears throat> kind of help clarify the language of the statute itself, but aren't really included in the statutes. And they're factors, the more of these factors that are in the incident, the more likely you are to be arrested, prosecuted, or convicted. And and so it, it gives the student uh, a, a different way of looking at how the laws are applied and what factors could affect uh, whether or not a person is prosecuted or arrested or prosecuted to begin with and, and finally convicted. So, so this is, it's, it's kind it's of a, a, it was a handbook for gun owners, right? It's a handbook for gun owners, but it applies to any use of any weapon. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Now, I, I, I defend people not with, who have not just used guns for a self-defense incident, but also other weapons, knives, etc. So this chapter you refer to, um, your thumbs down factors, that was going to be my next question, is chapter seven in your second edition of the book. And what are some of the thumbs down factors that could get a person charged when they're using force in self-defense? That's a great question. And I think we're seeing this a lot in the law enforcement arena now. Uh, the big one is the defender is armed with a deadly weapon like a gun or a knife, and the uh, the victim, and when I say victim in this interview, I, I mean it in quotes because a lot of the defenders don't consider them the victim. They consider themselves the victim. Sometimes I do too, most of the time when I'm defending the case, obviously. Um, uh, the victim has no weapon to speak of. Uh, you know, it's like in the Trayvon Martin case, you know, there was the, the claim that, uh, Mr. Martin was only, uh, uh armed with, uh, Skittles and a, and a can of iced tea, and yet he was using a, a slab of cement to, uh, cause injury to the defender. And, uh, and so, so have, right. yeah, you have to, you have to look sometimes past the uh, general media, main, mainstream media account of what happened and, and dig into the facts, especially if you're the defense attorney, and find out if indeed the victim was unarmed. But, uh, but anyway, that's the big one. In other words, armed defender, unarmed victim. That's the, that's the biggest thumbs-down factor. Then you've got racial issues. You've got age issues. You know, the younger the victim uh, the more likely the arrest or prosecution, um, use of drugs or alcohol, uh, committing a crime. Some of those are mentioned in the statute. but um, I think one uh, of them is shooting in the back. Shooting in the back. Yeah, that's always uh, an interesting one. And, and there's, you know, you go into it deeply on that one. There's expert testimony that oftentimes, uh, you know, it's, it's the reaction of the victim in causing the, the shooting in the back of the body part uh, quicker than the defender can react to not shoot. Um, and and there's, there's been a lot of expert testimony on that sort of thing. So there's there's just a, a wealth of, of knowledge uh, required to defend one of these cases. And it's important, I think, for those who carry a weapon for self-defense to understand a lot of the uh, rules and the exceptions to the rules. 
the last time we talked, which was the first time in 2014, we were actually talking about the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case. And we all know that Zimmerman went on to trial uh, for murder. Six-person jury acquitted him. So they did buy his defense, although he never did have a stand-your-ground hearing. But it's another Florida case, this one north of Tampa, that made me reach out to you again because it's back in the news. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about it and then go back to, you know, maybe some other cases and and, um, sort of a general discussion about self-defense. This is a case of a man named Curtis Reeves, who's now 74, but on January 13th, 2014, it was a Monday afternoon, he was 71, and he went to a matinee movie with his wife. He was meeting his son there, a Tampa police officer. Uh, he, He himself is a retired police officer, 27 years with the Tampa police, uh, retired as a captain. He went on to be director of security at Bush Gardens uh, in, in Tampa, but was retired at the time of this shooting. Now, a man named Chad Olson, 43 years old, was sitting in front of Reeves and his wife. Actually, Chad Olson was sitting in front of Reeves's wife, and he was with his wife. As the movie went dark, and the previews started, they had already flashed up a message to turn your cell phones off. Chad Olson was on his phone. And the light from his phone, he was looking at his Facebook page or texting or something. It, it bothered Mr. Reeves, who says he leaned forward and told him to stop using his phone. And when Olson had a belligerent reaction, according to Reeves, started calling him names and swearing at him and was over the top, according to Reeves, in his reaction certainly based upon Reeves's request. That's what he says. And he went, Reeves left the theater during the previews and, and told management what Olson was doing and then came back to his seat and Olson, he says, continued this verbal barrage and it escalated uh, during the previews to a physical confrontation. Uh, he, Reeves, says Olson turned around and shoved Olson's popcorn, you know, spilling the popcorn at him and then threw his, his cell phone at him. Reeves said the cell phone, an I-5 in an otter box, hit him in the left side of his head and, and knocked his glasses askew. And Reeves was standing. Reeves is, I'm not Reeves, Olson was standing. He's, he, he was 6'4 and about 205 pounds. Reeves was 6'1, about 260 pounds. And, and he, he felt, Reeves, that Olson was about to attack him after throwing the phone at him, which one could argue is, an, is also an attack. So Reeves reached into his pocket and he pulled out a 380 semi-automatic and he fired one shot at Olsen into his chest and it pierced his heart. Olsen died later that day and Reeves was charged with second-degree murder. Those are the broad, you know, broad strokes, what happened in the theater. Largely empty theater. There were a lot of retirees in there. It was a, it was a matinee on a Monday afternoon. He is now... He's had a stand-your-ground hearing, a very thorough two-week stand-your-ground hearing. As we talk, there hasn't been a decision yet, but there will be one soon. So what I want to do is talk about that case and, and, and Florida law, which I know you know about because we've discussed the Zimmerman case. Does he have a decent argument here? Well, the short answer is yes. I think he's got to – you talked about the defendant. Yes. Uh, has a, a decent argument in – uh, on the issue of self-defense. Incidentally, can I, can I just mention some of the some of my pet peeves? Yes. <laughs> as far as stand your ground hearing, um, it's it's somewhat of a misnomer. If you look at the statute, it's called an immunity hearing, and it, it's not just based upon whether or not 
uh, the defender has a right to stand his ground or not. Uh, the the issue is whether or not uh, he qualifies for a self defense defense. Uh, sounds a little redundant, but um, based upon several elements required to be justified in shooting or assaulting someone uh, using the defense of self-defense. And, and and there are several factors that, that, that come into play before you even get to whether or not he has a right to stand his ground, which in most states, I've counted now, you know, I, I have a, uh, there's another book on self-defense uh, by another attorney, and, and he and I agree that there are now 34 states, if you count uh, jury instructions and, and case law, that apply the rule of law that you have no duty to retreat if you are completely innocent uh, otherwise. But to get to that point, you've got to decide whether or not the person uh, acted reasonably, and that, that means did he act, was he reasonable from an objective standpoint, in other words, a, a reasonable man. Uh, it can't be like uh, someone who's a germ phobe, you know, and say, hey, you know, he was going to touch my hand, so I shot him. That's objectively unreasonable. So he's got to be, uh, he's got to be uh, reasonable in the sense of a reasonable person, and he's also got to believe that he had reason to defend himself. Is okay? So he's got to be objectively and subjectively reasonable. He's got to be facing an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. He's got to be um, uh, facing a threat. Uh, well, it has to be an imminent threat. It has to be a, a threat of, of death or serious bodily injury So, it's, so before he can use deadly force, like a, shooting a gun. Uh, he's, he can't be a trespasser. Uh, he uh, cannot use more force than is reasonably necessary. So he's got to jump over all of those hurdles before you get to the issue of whether or not it was safe to retreat. And, and because of that, the courts in this country as far back as a uh, Supreme Court decision in 1895, have held that in the United States, and this is in now 34 states, that uh, it would be unfair if the person is wholly and completely innocent in all those res respects that I talked about. Oh, and incidentally, he cannot be the aggressor. Uh, he cannot be the person that provoked the, the conflict. Uh, so, you know, you've got about eight factors that you go through that decide whether or not he's wholly and completely innocent. And then you look to the issue of whether or not it was safe to retreat. And in most states, including the Supreme Court of the United States in a federal case, have held that you don't have to, you know, it's unfair for the innocent person to then have to decide whether or not it's safe for him to, to, to retreat. Because a lot of these incidents occur in, in milliseconds. And uh, you could die in a second and a half. So let's back up for a second, Mitch, and talk about um, this duty to retreat. Because I don't know that talk. a lot of listeners, you know, we're using the legal language, duty to retreat. I mean, it, it does mean what the words are, but let's put it in context of the Castle Doctrine and, you know, stand your ground laws that take the Castle Doctrine and move it outside to where you are. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question, too, because the Castle Doctrine is, is, is a little bit, uh, it, it, it 
slides around as to, as to its meaning. Uh, let me just go back to common law. Uh, in jolly old England, where the common law originated, uh, you obviously didn't have to retreat from your castle. Okay? And that's why they call it the castle doctrine. You don't have to retreat from your home if, you're, if your castle is attacked. Okay? And that's, that's the majority rule in almost every state. Even if there's uh, an intruder who breaks in and doesn't have a gun, you can shoot that person yeah. because you're defending your private property, your home, your castle. Right. Well, the, you're defending the people in your home. It has to be an occupied dwelling in most states. But um, uh, you, you, um, you, um, you, ha you still have to act reasonably. And there, and there are some thumbs down factors that we uh, pointed out in our book. For example, youth. You know, you have the, the famous Florida case with the two ten-year-olds breaking into a trailer. You know, where a person lived. In kind of a junkyard, and and uh, uh, you know, the, one of the ten-year-olds was shot, killed, and, and so you know there are some thumbs-down factors that relates to age, and, and and I think race was a factor in that, that case as well, and so those things can come into play, and so uh, one thing that I need to point out as far as home defense is, uh, in most states, it has to be a uninvited intruder; uh, it, it can't be you know, that son-in-law that you can't stand and, and has a key to your house and, and, and you're saying, well, I'm defending myself in my home because he's a rowdy or he's drunk. And, you know, if he's, if he's had an invitation to, to uh, come into your home before, then the, the uninvited intruder doctrine doesn't apply and the, the presumptions of innocence don't apply, but you still have the right of self-defense from someone who's uh, threatening deadly force or serious bodily injury. But then moving... So it, it gets complicated. Well, moving outside the home... Now, outside the home, okay, so in, in jolly old England, you're going back to the common law, in jolly old England, once you were outside your home, you had a duty to retreat before using deadly force to the, they called it, to the wall. In other words, uh, you, uh, if it was it was safe, clearly safe for you to retreat rather than use deadly force, you had to do that. Um, but because of the reasons I mentioned earlier, uh, when the common law reached the United States, several states started to change that. Even before the Supreme Court hearing or Supreme Court decision in 1895, that Supreme Court case, federal case, looked back at some of the states. And uh, I believe in, even Utah and territorial times had a stand-your-ground uh, uh, rule that you did not have to retreat if you were wholly and completely innocent in every other way. Uh, if the, the burden or the risk of, of dying uh, was upon the aggressor and not upon the innocent offender. And that's what most states in the United States have held. And it's a fair... Uh, a, a very just principle of law because you know you're 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 balancing the rights of a person who is wholly and completely innocent against an aggressor, and the policy uh, reason for the rule is that the risk of dying or risk of serious bodily injury should be upon the attacker or the aggressor and not upon the innocent person. And therefore, the innocent person does not have to retreat, does not have to 
to make that split-second decision to decide whether or not it was completely safe for him to retreat because, you know, you don't know if somebody's got a gun, they're going to shoot you in the back while you're retreating. Uh, I say, the way I put it in, 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 in a short sentence is, uh, you don't have to get shot in the back during the legal analysis. That's that's what Stand Your Ground is all about. So, but so wait, the immunity here that we're talking about in this case, the, the Reese case, isn't just about Stand Your Ground. The, the the issue is whether or not he was wholly and completely innocent in all those other respects that I mentioned before. Did he use excessive force? Did he was he partly the aggressor? Was it impliedly a combat by agreement? Was he committing a crime? You know that sort of thing, and that's why it's. It, the, the true, I mean, it's, it's the nickname is stand your ground hearing, but it's really an immunity hearing. Why is it that we hear so much about Florida and its stand your ground law and immunity hearings when you say 34 states have stand your ground laws? Um, is it because of the immunity hearing? Do other states have those? The, the immunity hearing, uh, many states have an immunity hearing. A lot of states have copied Florida on that, but most states don't have an immunity hearing. Uh, it's called a preliminary hearing or a, a grand jury indictment. Uh, and uh, the standard for um, uh, binding that person over to a trial on the issue of self-defense is, is, is somewhat lower than the states that have the immunity hearing. In this the, the, the legislators that have passed the immunity hearing statutes uh, apparently recognize the ruinous nature of of having to pay a lawyer to defend you, not only the economic cost of such a proceeding, but also the emotional cost of such a proceeding. And the policy decision is that you're putting the burden uh, on the aggressor and not upon the innocent person, and therefore... If he acted reasonably in all these respects, he should walk free without having to pay for a full-blown trial. Uh, the, the issue right now in Florida is um, that the uh, defendant has the burden of proving by a preponderance of the evidence that he's entitled to an immunity. Uh, and, and there's a bill apparently uh, percolating in the uh, Florida legislature uh, whether or not that burden should shift uh, to the state to have to prove that uh, he wasn't wholly and completely innocent in every respect. It's uh, time for a quick break. You're listening to Karis on Crime. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm Beth Karis, and I'm talking to Utah attorney Mitch Velos about firearms and self-defense. When is it lawful to use deadly force to protect yourself? Every state, I believe every state, has a self-defense law. Is that true, Mitch? Well, when you say self-defense law... Statute, I guess. Statutes. <laughs> uh, no, not every state has it. Uh, D.C. does not have it, um, and, and theirs is ruled by case law. Um, I... I I can't remember the other state or two that, that does not have a statute. I know that, for example, California has a very strong statute that was written back in 1898 and uh, purportedly gives you a right to shoot rioters uh, or anyone causing a civil disturbance. Uh, but, of course, the, the courts have long since 
abandoned that statute, and they they govern their cases by what they call um, judicial counsel approved jury instructions. And 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 you know what? It's sad is most most citizens don't have access to those. Right. Or they don't know where to look, and they don't know, and they don't understand uh, what they mean. And a lot of those are given to juries. <laughs> so if you're defending yourself in a, in a case like this, uh, you know you've got a lot of complicated legalese uh, standing between between you and freedom. Let me go back to the Reeves case uh, north of Tampa that is currently pending. Uh, Curtis Reeves, now 74 years old, was 71 when he shot and killed Chad Olson, 43, in a movie theater after Olson threw popcorn and a cell phone at him. The autopsy report indicates that there was um, some like some gunpowder burns on the right, the back of the right hand of Chad Olson, which the defense argues is evidence that the shot, which went into his chest, the left side of his chest, indicates that his right fist was lifted, perhaps about to punch Curtis Reeves, and that's why Reeves pulled out his gun and shot him. Helpful okay. fact, if, if that's, well, that's interpreted very, that, accurately? That's a very helpful fact. And I'll tell you, uh, anybody that's gone through any kind of uh, self-defense training, force-on-force uh, -force training, realizes that you could die in a split second. And I, I think that this, uh, the reason that the defense in the uh, Reeves case is putting on so much evidence about the training of this uh, retired police officer is, is to put that into, uh, to, to help the jury understand, or help the judge in this case, understand uh, uh, the defendant's perceptions of what was going on. Uh, you know, you, you could die easily. Uh, I mean, you've got an elderly man who could punched by someone who could be punched or struck by another object, uh, by someone who's out of control. Uh, that could cause uh, a traumatic brain injury. Uh, he, uh, as I recall reading about this case, uh, the defendant had a number of health problems. Well, he had sciatica. Um, he needed to like hold on to both arms of the chair to get up. You know, he was overweight, and his his legs bothered him. Uh, but I mean, you know, to a layperson, but before really analyzing the law and reading, you know, the defense motion arguing that you know he was totally justified in firing the gun, I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I mean, popcorn and a cell phone was thrown at him, and he shot him in the chest. You you know, to me, it seems so excessive. Well, remember the standard is serious bodily injury. A traumatic brain injury could not be not considered serious bodily injury. At age 71, you know, your, your brain starts to shrink. You get struck in the head by a, a young, um, active, uh, and, and seemingly strong uh, person who's out of control or seems to be out of control. That could cause serious bodily injury. And, and that's a standard. Now, you know, we get back to the policy argument. Who should bear the risk here? Should it be the innocent person who's simply trying to make sure that theater uh, goers uh, comply with the rules of the theater? Uh, or should it be the, the person that's going to turn around and, and uh, assault an elderly person? Who should bear the risk of serious bodily injury or death? And that's, I think, what the legislature was thinking when they wrote the, the law that 
uh, about the immunity hearings. Curtis Reeves uh, says that he was polite in uh, speaking to Chad Olson uh, and asking him to turn off his cell phone. People in the theater say they, they actually recall hearing Olson's voice. Uh, a lot of people don't recall hearing Reeves. Olson's wife was sitting with him and she testified. By the way, she got injured too. She was ho trying to mm -hmm. hold her husband down. Her, her, like her finger got, was grazed by the bullet. Um, and I don't know the details of her testimony, but I believe that uh, it, it was that Mr. Reeves was very nasty in asking her husband to stop using the cell phone. Would that qualify as provocation if Reeves used some nasty words or swore at him or a, a sort of a belligerent tone in asking him initially to stop using his cell phone? Well, uh you know, there's there's two phrases that are used throughout the 50 states that relate to being the initial aggressor is one, or being the provoca. I can't even say it. The per, the person that provokes. Okay. Provocateur, uh, right. Yeah, provocateur. Uh, uh, in provoking a fight, the, it, technically you have to have an intent to injure to begin with, and that's why you're provoking. In other words, you're, you're provoking so that the, uh, the victim uh, will appear to be the initial aggressor with the intent to injure the victim to begin with. Okay? That's the way uh, provoking in these statutes is used, typically. Okay? So I think the... the, the the, probably the more appropriate issue is whether or not there was an implied combat by agreement. Uh, if, if, the, if the defendant was using, uh, you know, had lost his temper and was using um, language that would uh, escalate the conflict, uh, you know, most self-defense statutes say you cannot be engaged in combat by agreement, and that can be implied as well as expressed. In other words, express combat by agreement would be, you know, meet me outside the saloon at high noon and we'll slap leather. But impliedly, I see it all the time in road rage situations where both individuals have lost their temper and uh, they start doing things which usually starts with obscene language and obscene gestures, and then it, it, it escalates to the point where somebody's driving a car recklessly and the person that has a gun uh, rationalizes and says, hey, a car can be a deadly weapon. I'm going to stick my gun out the window and let this guy know I'm armed. And um, uh, 13 witnesses have seen this occurring as the conflict proceeds down the highway, and half of them are calling the uh, victim the initial aggressor, and the other half are calling the, the defendant the initial aggressor, and depending on just what they saw at what particular time, and then you've got a problem. When it gets that complicated, police and prosecutors just say, hey, we're going to let the jury decide, especially if it ends up with a serious injury to the, or death to the victim. How much do you think judges in deciding a case like the judge in the immunity hearing for Curtis Reeves is considering sort of 
policy questions and appearance. And I mean, if she were to grant the defense motion and immunize Mr. Reeves from criminal prosecution and civil liability, what message would that be sending? Don't beat up on helpless old man. What about it's okay to... You're like, in, in, in an armed society, you know, you've heard the phrase, an armed society is a is a uh, peaceful society. Uh, you know, people don't get into fights because somebody's likely to die. Uh, I think it was Clint, what was his name, uh, Clint-ism. Uh, who was it? That, it was uh, one of the famous uh, trainers down at one of the uh, training facilities. I believe it was in Arizona. You know, so don't don't get into a fight with an old man. He'll probably just kill you. Um, uh, but that's the message. Uh, I don't think the judge makes the decision based upon the policy. The policy is established by the legislature, and, and they have established a policy in, in as much as they have written the immunity law, which is what people refer to as a standard ground hearing. In Florida still, the, 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 uh, the, the defendant has the burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence, which is a lot lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. When the case goes to trial, the state has the burden of proving that the defendant did not act in self-defense. And uh, all of the same evidence can still come in at trial. All the same evidence can come in at trial, and in as much as the defendant has testified in this case, I believe his testimony is going to be in the trial. That's right. So, so, so have these stand your ground laws resulted in I don't know, fewer homicides or less crime, decreasing crime? I think the the jury's still out on that issue. Uh, as I look at, I, I mean, Beth, I look at every uh, shooting uh, or high-profile self-defense incident that I can get my hands on that, that occur in this country. And uh, honestly, the problem isn't with uh, law-abiding citizens defending themselves uh, from aggressors. The, the typical shooting occurs between gangbangers, uh, pimps protecting their turf, uh, like you're seeing in Chicago, uh, or domestic violence. Domestic violence now constitutes anywhere between a third and a half of the homicides in any given state or county. And so those are the problem areas. Um, you just really don't. I think. I think that ultimately the the, uh, the stand your ground laws uh, and the policy uh, the policies that have been established by state legislatures is ultimately going to lead uh, to lead to less violent crime. And I think that's the trend that we're seeing over the past twenty years, where you have armed citizens and people allowed to, to exercise their right to keep their arms. You know, doing away with gun free zones is going to help a lot. Uh, I don't know why a lot of people can't see that, but when you disarm people and they're they're like helpless fish in a barrel, uh, and you have terrorists and you have uh, crazy people that want to kill a lot of people for notoriety, uh, you're going to have high high statistics in, in those kinds of incidents because nobody's there to to defend themselves. So I, I really think that. Uh, a armed society is a safe society, a polite society, and uh, 
and uh, you're just going to see. Uh, but but the problem is the drugs, the gangs, uh, human trafficking, uh, all those other things that that are coming into play that are causing most of the murders. You know, suicide is a big factor too, obviously. And well, and the trafficking in guns getting into uh, hands unlawfully. That's the gangs, I guess. The, the gangs, and you know, just about every gang shooting. That's incidentally, if you're a member of a gang and, it, and you have a, a legitimate case of self-defense, you've got a thumbs down factor with you know your tattoos, your your gang membership, everything else. You know, because it's an implied, uh, it's an implied uh, uh, mutual combat. Well, recently, President Trump rolled back a requirement of um, that the mentally ill could not easily get their hands on guns, and now that's not the case? Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Actually, uh, it was it was a completely unconstitutional, overly broad uh, policy uh, that uh, President Obama established that assumed that anybody that needed help with their finances as a Social Security recipient was uh, a, a danger to himself or others, and that's absolutely not true. And so President Trump simply uh, rolled that back and said, "Look, we still have the uh, requirements under the Brady, uh, the Brady law that says if you've been ruled through due process to be mentally defective, or you've been committed to a mental institution, which requires a court hearing, uh, involuntarily committed to a mental institution, then you still you can't buy a firearm, you can't possess firearm or ammunition." Which so is it? The safeguards, the safeguards are still there. Uh, it, the only thing that President Trump did was roll back a, uh, uh, a a policy that did away with due process. Well, so it's good that there is this uh, prohibition against possessing a gun if you've been involuntarily committed. But isn't that based on self-reporting? You have to trust that the applicant is telling you the truth. No, 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 no. No, it can be family members. It can be neighbors, whoever is witnessing uh, the person's act, actions, they can come to court and testify that the person is a danger. And I so see. either mentally defective or involuntarily committed to a mental institution. I, I covered a trial in Ohio years ago, Columbus, Ohio, of Charles McCoy. He was called the Ohio sniper shooter, and he was severe paranoid schizophrenic. And he lawfully obtained a gun, and he lied on the um, application. And that, in Ohio, was based on self-reporting um, to obtain the gun initially, and then he used it to take shots off um, an overpass. He killed one person. Oh, I see what you mean by self-reporting. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I meant in obtaining the gun. So, you uh, know, no, the application no. No, says, no, 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 have no, you no. ever been committed? And you say no, even if you have been, and who's going to check? Oh, the, the records are now, uh, the records most, if not all, states uh, of the mental, uh, of the proceeding that have found the person de mentally defective or uh, involuntarily committed to a mental institution are, are now uh, mandated that they be sent to the state's Department of Public Safety so that when that person tries to buy a gun and a Brady check is, uh, is done, that person cannot, cannot buy a gun or possess. And if he gets caught, he's, he's guilty of a felony, a federal felony. Okay. So um, before we wrap up, I, uh, well, two things. I'd, I'd like your prediction on what you think will happen with Curtis Reeves. I mean, again, as we talk, the judge has not ruled on this immunity hearing, but it will be coming uh, any day now. What's your prediction? 
Well, my prediction is if she goes by the law uh, and isn't influenced by public or public opinion, she probably find that he's uh, he's got immunity because that's the way the legislature intended it. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know if you you saw this in our 2013 book that came out just just before the Zimmerman decision founding him not guilty. We predicted that he was going to be found not guilty. There are a lot of public policy, uh, or not public policy, but public press. There's a lot of public pressure to to make this defendant in the Reeves case go to trial. Uh, and the question is going to be: Can the judge withstand that kind of? Uh, there's going to be a public outcry if she cuts him loose. Uh, you know, but I, when you mention the factors that you have uh, relating to the facts in that case, I think that. Uh, uh, if we're going, if we're going to follow the policy that the Florida legislature enacted, uh, the the risk going to have to lie upon an aggressor like Mr. Olson, who was out of control, uh, who was assaulting an elderly person, who and, and I think you mentioned that there are some statutes that say that you, those kinds of assaults can can be felonies because of the dangers to the elderly. That's right. And so under, under Florida yeah. law, you, you have to be where you are. You have to be at a place where you have a right to be. He had a right to be in a movie theater. As you say, you can't be trespassing, but he had a right to be there. You can't be engaged in any unlawful activity. He was carrying a gun, but he was licensed to carry a con uh, concealed weapon. And uh, you have to be reasonable in your belief that you are, in, in Florida, is one of three things. You are preventing serious physical injury or the commission of a forcible felony. And the defense argued there are several of these felonies under Florida law where the victim is over 65, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, battery assault without the aggravated, or you're reasonable in, in um, using force to prevent your own death. So... Yeah, and there's another factor here that we're not even talking about. If you read Chapter 20 in our book, uh, the issue of perception and reaction time needs to be... Uh, considered in these cases. It, it's not in any of the jury instructions, uh, but I, I usually get it in through expert testimony. This police officer, retired police officer, was trained to know that you know he didn't have time to uh, slowly and carefully and methodically analyze whether or not this out-of-control person was going to try to kill him. Uh, you know, it, it, one, one blow could cause serious bodily injury to an elderly person. And to put that burden on the innocent rather than the out-of-control aggressor, I think, is wrong. Um, we'll see how the judge decides that. Right. And let me just add that Curtis Reeves had a 5-foot-2-inch wall behind him, and he had empty chairs to his left, his wife to his right, but he says to get up, he needed to use both hands on the arms of the chair, and he would have leaned forward, and it would have uh, made the space even closer between him and Olson. So uh, he didn't do that. That's an excellent argument by the defense. Um, so, you know, the point is, uh, you know, if you can't control your temper, don't go around trying to beat up old men. They may kill you. Uh, I, I, that's the public policy that's... Uh, that's uh, being um, played out here, and I, I don't know how can you argue with that. I mean, nobody deserves to be beaten as an elderly person. Yeah. Well, I have so many more questions I could ask. Why should the risk? 
why should the risk uh, lie with him? Why not the risk of death or serious injury lie with the assault, the assailant, the aggressor? Why not? I mean, learn to control your anger. Learn to control yourself. Yeah, right. His wife was trying to hold him back. Well, I have so many more questions I could be asking you. We're out of time today. In the future, I'd love to ask you about uh, the attack on police uh, um, in in our country these days. Uh, they uh, are under under fire for use of force, um, certainly in certain communities, um, and rightfully so in some cases, and not in others. And but that's a discussion for another day. So I want to think. Let me just tell you, that's the issue. The issue is perception and reaction time. The police have been trained to know they can die in an instant. And they, if they're waiting to see a gun, uh, you know, if they, if they suspect the person is violent and may have a weapon, it's too late. They cannot react in time. We could go into that for another four, a full hour, but I've been in police training myself to see that play out and to see how easy it is to die under those circumstances. Well, that will be a discussion for another day. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mitch. It's been enlightening as always. And for more, check out Mitch Velos's websites, www.firearmslaw, all one word, firearmslaw.com and www.utah-injurylaw.com. His book is called... We're actually going to change... Let me just tell you, we're, we're probably going to change it to Mitch Velos, V-I-L-O-S.com, M-I-T-C-H-V-I-L-O-S.com. Uh, soon we're, we're working on a new website but thank you for Perfect. the pitch and sure and thank you for giving me a, uh, a pulpit here great and the book is called self-defense laws of all 50 states the second edition out in 2013 but look out for a new one uh to come and i want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of Karis on crime send me your questions and ideas post them in the forum on karasoncrime.com if you're a member or on social media i have two twitter handles at beth Karras and at Karis on crime and you can also find me on facebook on the page with my name beth Karras. till the next time be well